So today is an exciting day. I think we have to talk about two things. The climate strikes happening all over around the world and the election in Australia just a few days ago. Hello and welcome to Outrage and Optimism, a new podcast about dealing with the climate crisis and remaking the world. My name's Tom Rivett-Karnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. And today, we discuss the global climate strikes that are taking place right now in 120 countries. And we also talk about the shift from school strikes to general strikes that will begin in September. We also dig into what happened last week in the Australian elections. And we talk to Bill McKibben, author, activist, and founder of 350. Thanks for being here. Right, so um, so let's start with the strikes. Uh, we're sitting here today on Friday the 24th and images and videos are flooding in from all around the world of thousands of young people on the streets in Australia, in Korea, in India, in the Philippines, in Syria, um, as, as the day has sort of begun and obviously will sweep around the world as the day moves on. And it's really something to watch all of this. And I just wanted to start by asking you, Christiana, as you sit here in London and we prepare to go down to the strikes ourselves in a bit, how do you feel watching all of this? Well, I'm actually quite excited. Um, And, you know, I spent some time yesterday with our mutual friend, Nick Robbins. And Nick said that he's beginning to think about this as the climate spring. Hmm. in resonance to the Arab Spring. And we know, you know, everything that happened um, after that. So gladly there's no immolation involved here. Um, But uh, it is definitely, it is exciting to see that there is so much commitment from so many different countries that are self-organized. Obviously, this would not have been possible without social media because many of these kids, many of these youngsters are just getting the news off of their social media feed and organizing themselves. And that would right. never have been possible. But it's not only because it's possible with social media. It's because it is really responding to increased anxiety and outrage, to use our favorite word, um, about the fact that we are totally running out of time. So I'm very excited about it. And it's, I mean, arguably, Paul, it's even more impactful than the time you went to the G7 all on your own with a banner saying the earth is dying 20 years ago. How are you feeling about all this? Um, I, I think that there's something extraordinary here about the potential for uh, for for our movement, if, if that's the right phrase, uh, to actually uh, set a, a, a marker in the stand about what I would describe as the extreme right. Because all around the world, the extreme right wing nationalists, sometimes even racist parties, you could say, are promoting environmental destruction. They are denying climate change. And if we are very, very clear, and if we associate our movement with uh, a just transition, then I think we can we can actually um, help the world move away from the precipice of extreme right wing politics, nationalism, and, and all that follows from that. Yeah, well, that's very, and we should get to specifically Australia because that's very relevant to what you just said. But um, so just to stay on the strikes, I mean, I think one other interesting thing that is new today is um, is yesterday Greta and other leaders from the youth movement. Uh, wrote an opinion piece to call on the rest of society to join them. And it's an amazing piece in which they sort of say, look, you know, 
uh, we're we're passionate and we're committed, but we can't do this on our own. And just an hour ago, uh, the response was issued to that with dozens of eminent people, community leaders, artists, authors, activists, and one Christiana Figueres, all responding to the call um, <laughs> and naming the 20th of September as the date. Uh, for the first global general strike on climate. And that is a major wow. step change to go from here to there. And of course, it's very exciting. But of course, any change like this comes with risk. So what do we think? Do we, is this the right move? What's going to happen when this turns from a school strike, which has been so impactful, to a general strike in September? Well, do you remember that um, there was a pretty impressive climate change march in New York in 2014, September yeah, also, yeah. just before the uh, the Secretary General's summit? And, um, and that was uh, something that was pretty localized. It was in New York. It attracted people mostly from the United States, some, some other countries as well. Um, and it was a, a, a march, a very peaceful, I think, very constructive march. What I think is uh, is different now is that this is going to be decentralized, uh, just like renewable energy is decentralized, mm. by the way. Um, it's going to be decentralized. Everyone can uh, can go out to the streets or can simply not go to their usual daily routine, but take the day out to truly uh, engage in different thinking and different acting in order to precipitate a step change um, and do it at home because the fact is that this is not just the responsibility of national governments this is not just the responsibility of one particular sector this is a joined a shared responsibility of each one of us and so the fact that this is being planned as being possible for everyone everywhere at any time during that day to participate um, I think is a very important message Hmm. The idea of a global general strike in September is incredibly exciting, I think. It will focus the world's attention on how critically important this issue is and it will mobilize people. And I think we should be very positive about how popular that mobilization can and should be. I mean, for example, we, we know we need to tax resource consumption, we know we need to tax pollution, and we can take uh, taxation off the poorest people. There can and should be a wealth transfer from the wealthiest who burn the most fossil fuels per person uh, through to the uh, to the less well-off in society. And I think uh, solving an environmental problem and solving a social justice problem together uh, is not a right-left issue. It's a centrist issue that I think the world can unite around. That's a very nice point there and a nice segue about it not being a right-left issue. But I do think we have to temper um, this excitement of this very um, interesting uh, emergency emerging idea with with the reality that that last week we had uh, Governor Jay Inslee on the podcast and we talked very confidently about how climate ambition can now win elections and the next day we saw the Australian Labour Party defeated by Scott Morrison's Liberals in what was really branded as a climate change election and I'm just going to quote from an editorial that came out the following day in the Wall Street Journal um, written by the editorial board the Wall Street Journal and they said if American Democrats want a warning about the consequences of embracing the Green New Deal, look no further than Saturday's election shocker in Australia. The result is another lesson that the politics of climate change is not as simple as Western elites claim. Labour thought the droughts and brush fires would cause voters to embrace its climate solutions, but young people say they care about the issue often as virtue signalling. 
voters in democracies time and again have rejected climate change policies that wouldn't in the end matter all that much to the climate anyway. So there's there's a good deal of kind of crowing going on, um, but I think it is incumbent on us to kind of dig into this a little bit. Um, I mean, do we think that there were strategic problems with the way that campaign was run? Are there lessons that come from that? I mean, we've talked already about a kind of just transition on on this podcast. Maybe that was missing. Um, but I think it's worth kind of unpicking that really surprising election result and trying to identify what what went wrong. Christiana, what's your analysis of this? Well, um, I, I, I do think that the lesson, again, is very much the same lesson that we all derived from the Yellow Vest movement in France, which is, yes, definitely we can use technology to reduce emissions, but technology is not going to reduce inequality. And, 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 and that's, that's the most painful reality that most people are feeling right now. In addition to the fact that, of course, they're being, um, they're being um, affected by extreme weather events, but the daily experience of most people around the world at this point is the extreme inequalities that are only growing. Right. So what are we doing about that? Because we cannot solve one thing and leave the other behind. I mean, I would just add to that by saying that that Wall Street Journal editorial, it's, it's very powerful. It's pretty much identical to Wall Street Journal editorials I've been reading for about 20 years. Yes, They used to say uh, climate change is not proven and therefore, you know, there's no need to pay attention. Now they say people are not responding to the wildfires and the droughts. Uh, but I think that actually the position is becoming increasingly untenable. And despite this election shock in Australia, I think anyone who's financing or building uh, new coal mines or, or running or planning existing coal production knows that they're in an increasingly untenable position. Unfortunately, they, they're joining tobacco and asbestos and a whole bunch of other industries that ultimately know they need to shut down. And, and so I, don't, I, I think although it's a setback, um, it, it's, it's not really changing anything. Uh, and and the, the power of, of rationality is coming to bear despite the setbacks. Yeah. So should we talk to Bill McKibben let's, about this? Let's have a chat with Bill. So Bill has been in this space for decades. He wrote a book called The End of Nature in 1989 that really popularized the idea of climate change for a wide, a much wider audience than, than, than had previously known about it. He's, he's a writer. Um, he's an academic. Uh, he's also a Methodist Sunday school teacher. He, often his, his faith has played a big role in his, his commitment to this. But he also founded, he's become increasingly activist over the years. He founded a group called 350 that has been incredibly influential, particularly in the divestment movement, and I think really is one of the best organizers of social movements, um, civil, disobedience. civil disobedience that has let himself be uh, be arrested uh, many times. Right, a leader in the financial disobedience, if you will, or uh, perhaps a visionary for a financial future. Cool. All right, so um, let's talk to Bill.
Bill McKibben, what a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. And the main thing that we want to go through with you today is the global climate strike that young people are engaged in right now. More than 1,500 locations, 115 countries, the second global climate strike. And it's also very interesting that the strikers are now calling on the rest of society to join them. So that's the exciting part, and we'll get there. But unfortunately, we feel we have to go there by way of Australia. Which is less exciting, may I say. (laughs) (laughs) So last week, we had uh, Governor Jay Inslee on the podcast, where we confidently predicted that the days when which climate change can win elections were now upon us. And just the next day, we saw this somewhat devastating result. So um, we're going to just kick off with a couple of questions about that. I'm going to hand over to Christiana, and then we'll dive into where we are today with the strikes and the kids. So, Bill, I don't know how you reacted to the results of the election in Australia. I was uh, hanging there on the edge of my chair. What does this mean, Bill? Because we've heard since then, once, once we all got over our shock, We've heard arguments on both sides, right? We've heard arguments on the right saying, well, actually, climate change is really uh, just for the privileged few that have time to think about esoteric things that don't really matter and are not really occurring. Um, And we've also heard and read arguments that say, well, actually, we who work on climate change have not done our job because, yes, technology is moving forward, but we have not addressed the inequality issues that we have inherited from the previous industrial revolution and that we cannot let go forward into the new green industrial revolution. So those are two sides of the argument. Um, were you as surprised as we were about Australia? And what what do you think this means for, let's call it, the electability of climate change in elections? Well, you know, of course, I was gutted to hear what happened. I'm no expert on Australian politics, though I've been there often campaigning with all our colleagues there. Uh, I mean, the first thing it means is that Australia is going to be missing in action as a government. We've lost, you know, one of the six continents during the strategic, you know, crucial period of the next few years. And that's a really harsh outcome. I think politically, probably what it demonstrates is that um, going halfway probably is the worst place for politicians to be caught Mm. out. That is, labor in Australia was not really willing to put forward a very strong climate position. They were unwilling to come out, for instance, resolutely against plans for these massive new coal mines in the Galilee Basin and things. And so they found it hard to rally as much support as they might have. Um, There probably are uh, lessons somewhat similar left over from the American presidential election. I fear that somewhat the same thing may be underway in Canada right now with uh, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau facing Mm re-election and kind of uh, out in the middle. So the middle is a tough place to be. Um, I think what it underscores more than anything else is that we need to do big organizing all the time. And if we do, we can change the zeitgeist. And when we change the zeitgeist, then what's politically possible changes. Uh, And so that's the, the work of the future. But it is really daunting to realize that we're going to have 
at the bottom of the world, uh, uh, a continent dedicated to keeping the fossil fuel industry alive for a few more years. So you don't think the absence of any program on what is, you know, sort of known as just transition for all of those in particular in Australia that depend on the coal industry, you don't think that that was a huge absence? I think there. that's a key part of what's going on. It's, it's what I was trying to say. It's why things like what we're talking about in the States now with the Green New Deal are so important mm -hmm. because they go far enough to actually begin to give people hope that there's uh, a, a good outcome for them on the other side. Um, but people have to understand that, have to see that there's a way forward. You know, so that's why the Green New Deal, the Leap Manifesto, the kind of things that around the world people have begun to campaign on that see this not only as a crisis, but as an opportunity are, are really powerful, I think. It's interesting because, you know, for, for so much talk as we have had uh, over the past few years about ESG, right? Environment, society, and governance. It does seem that uh, the, the climate movement has been focusing very much on the environment side and putting a lot of trust on technology to move us forward in that. But we've kind of forgotten about the S and the G, the social and the governance pieces. And, um, and, and that was where we started to begin with, by saying all of those three are actually mutually reinforcing. And we need, if we're going to create a better, safer, more just world, we need to work on all three together. That's right. And if we don't, then the fears that are aroused by any kind of moment of transition uh, will redound to the benefit of people who want to point nostalgically backwards. Mm. Uh, you know, there's that's a certain amount of what happened with Donald Trump. Uh, uh, it's a scary time. Any big transition scary, uh, including one like this, which comes with such enormous physical risks. And so we better give people a bridge forward. Yeah. Yeah. Much of the really interesting analysis that's come out has been that there wasn't really a plan for those who were very resource dependent that was put out by by labor to kind of provide a bridge. And I think that they were, you know, in a sense, some people were being asked to vote for a very un for 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 two types of uncertain future, but one in which their their livelihoods might short term be at risk and they rejected that. Um but what would you say, Bill? I mean, you know, two years ago with the election of Trump and and all the responses that you've been coordinating uh, in reaction to that, what would you say to our kind of Australian friends who are feeling like you felt two years ago right now? Um, how can they respond to this? Uh, well, I, I think there's really nothing that can take away the uh, pain in the short term, but everybody I've heard from down there is already hard at work organizing. Yeah. Um. They understand that some of the work that we need to do runs through governments, there is no question. But they also understand that a lot of the work that we need to do runs through uh, commerce and business. And they've done remarkable work, uh, you know, huge numbers of uh, Australian pension funds, what they call super funds down under, are now in the process of divesting from fossil fuel. Uh, banks have been refusing to underwrite the, these vast new coal mines, things like that. So people are making real inroads uh, uh, in lots of places. It's just going to get harder now, just as it's gotten harder in the States. 
one result of that, of course, as we've seen in the United States, will be the you know more and more resistance, and so the politics around climate seems to have shifted pretty dramatically in America over the last year or two, where before it was usually a, a, an issue that even Democratic and liberal voters listed as fifth, sixth, seventh on their list of priorities. Now, with Donald Trump making clear that he won't do anything to help, that he doesn't care at all, uh, it's become the number one issue in the polling for yeah. Democratic voters. And hence, we've gone from a scenario four years ago when they didn't even ask questions about climate change during the presidential debates to a place where the presidential candidates on the Democratic side are vying to see who can be the most progressive in their position. So that's a a good sign. Yeah. And so in into this, let's call it the radicalization, right, of, of the political sides on climate change. Into this, we see, Bill, uh, a very interesting, uh, I would say, dramatic uh, tick up in civil disobedience. And, you know, I, I would like to call you in, in total respect, the father and the guru of civil <laughs> disobedience on climate change, because you have been calling for this for decades. Um, and so I would just love to know how, how do you feel now that we have so much civil disobedience? We had uh, Extinction Rebellion in London for 10 or 11 days, paralyzing London. We today have millions of young people and not so young people on the streets in, uh, I don't know, a hundred and something countries. Uh, it, it's uh, 115 countries or a thousand... 500 locations, most of them self-organized. Thank God for WhatsApp that is organizing all of this. Um, how do you feel about this civil disobedience that has erupted? Actually, I would say quite abruptly over the past few months. How do you feel about it? Why do you think it is erupting now? And why is it coming mostly from under 18s? Good questions all around, Christiana. Um, <laughs> look, the first thing to be said is there's a very sad aspect to this. In a rational world, we should not depend on 14-year-olds leaving school to get us to care about the climate crisis. We've had ample and serious warnings from scientists for 30 years that have been more or less ignored by the powers that be in our world. And so now we're reduced to the point where it takes uh, school children to shame people into action. Um, I'm very, very glad that they're doing it. Greta Thunberg and all who have followed her are great heroes. It's been a great pleasure to work with them, to work with Greta, to work with her American counterparts. They're terrific and wise beyond their years and wiser than they should have to be, I got to say. Um, um, there's such a thing as growing up too fast, and some of these kids are being forced to do that. But thank heaven they are. Uh, and so the question now is, how do we respond? Uh, earlier today, um, we've issued a letter from dozens and dozens and dozens of leaders around the world, yourself included, uh, yourself eminent on the list, um, saying that, you know what, adults are going to play their role, that we're going to have a climate strike for all ages. And the day that what people are aiming for is September 20th at the start of the next UN General Assembly around climate. 
And we're going to need people, you know, we're going to need people walking out of their offices. We're going to need chefs walking out of their restaurants and footballers walking off the pitch. And we're going to need to be disrupting business as usual because it's literally business as usual that's doing us in. It's the fact that we get up day after day and do more or less the same thing we did the day before, even as the greatest crisis we've ever faced is is engulfing us. Uh, that's the problem. Now, now Bill, we had a, a pretty impressive climate march in New York in 2014, just before the climate summit then. How and why is this one different? Well, this will be all, I mean, that was a great day uh, in September. September of 2014, the People's Climate March with 400,000 people in the streets of New York. What'll be different here is it's going to have to be everywhere. And I think the the model that really is best to think about is what happened almost 50 years ago on the first Earth Day in the United States. On that first Earth Day, there were, we think, about 20 million Americans in the streets all over America, about 10% of the then population of the United States. And it turned out that was enough. You know, 10% was enough to do the thing that activists try to do, which is change the zeitgeist, change people's sense of what's normal and natural and obvious. In the three or four years after that first Tom Earth Day... Tom and I have square eyes right now, Bill, I have to tell you. We were not aware that that was We had 20, no idea no it was idea. that number. We're making square eyes at each other here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's it, it was probably the biggest day of political protest in American history. And what happened afterwards was what was remarkable. In the next two or three years, Congress passed every piece of environmental legislation on which we still depend, the ones that Trump is always trying to gut, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act. And these acts were not only crucial in America, they were the template by which the rest of the world adopted its own environmental policies in the decade that followed. Uh, so those 20 million Americans out in the street were absolutely crucial. Uh, I, I don't know what the number is that it's going to take <laughs> this time, but it's more than we've put in the streets so far, and it has to be all over the world because they don't call it global warming for nothing. Right. Um, that's what we'll be trying to organize. I doubt that one day of striking will do it. I, I think like the school kids, we're going to have to do it a few times. But I know that our hope lies in rapidly building up a movement that is powerful enough to counterbalance the enormous influence of the fossil fuel industry. That's always been the game here. And if we can figure out, I mean, we figure out many ways to do it. That's what the divestment campaign has been about. And that's become the biggest corporate campaign in history. We're now at $8 trillion worth of endowments and portfolios that have divested in part or in whole. That's what these campaigns about infrastructure that began with the fight over the Keystone Pipeline have been about. And we're now at the point where, as the head of the American Natural Gas Association said not long ago, we somehow have to stop the Keystoneization of everything that we're trying to do. So we've had some impact. We've begun the process of, of building the power that we need. Our problem is we just have to do it fast. It has to get big fast because, as you know, the 
destruction is coming at us fast. I, I think the only way to think of all of this is as a race. And there's a three-part race. There's the, the fossil fuel industry's power, which is immense but waning. There's the movement's power, which is growing with every day. And the third part of this race is the part being run by the engineers who are bringing down the price of a solar panel with each passing month. Uh, as that price falls, it puts pressure on the fossil fuel industry from the other side. So uh, I'm not willing to be either confident or despairing. I'm ready to fight and fight some more. Yeah, you saying that reminds me, I love in your book where you say there are two technologies that can come together to save the planet, and those are civil disobedience movements and solar panels. They were the, you know, they're the great technologies of the 20th century. I, I think that's what we'll recognize 100 years from now. Right now, people would say, I don't know, nuclear weapons and genetics or something. Right. Those are powerful, but they're not as powerful as the solar panel is going to turn out to be and the wind turbine. And they're not as powerful as this incredible technology that the suffragettes and that Gandhi and that Dr. King and so many million others pioneered in the last century. The ability to build movements, nonviolent movements, that are capable of allowing the small and the many to stand up to the mighty and the few. That's the challenge here. That's the job. And I, I have no doubt that we'll do it. I just don't know whether we'll do it in time. In time. Climate mm -hmm. change is the first timed test we ever faced. And that's the thing that, that daunts me. And that's the reason that makes it seem so urgent. You know, I did not, I'm a writer by trade. It never occurred to me that I was going to be ending up routinely in handcuffs or whatever. But that's some of the work to which we're now called. How many times have you let yourself be arrested, Bill? <laughs> I, I don't know, seven or eight, I guess. And <laughs> you know, civil disobedience is just one tool in the activist toolkit. Nonviolent movements have a thousand other parts to them, and you don't want to use those dramatic tools too often because, like any tool, they get dull, you know, literally and, and figuratively. But um, it is an important way sometimes of underscoring the moral urgency of a situation. And I think no one's done a better job of making that clear than Greta Thunberg. Somehow the basic, the basic statement that she made with her body, the, the statement that if our leaders can't be bothered to prepare the future for children, then children really it's a lot to ask that they go diligently try to prepare themselves for that future. When she made that statement with her body, it resonated in deep ways. And mm. it's a, a statement, you, you know, that would have been immediately made complete sense to Dr. King or to Gandhi or to the suffragettes or to Cesar Chavez or to Nelson Mandela or to any of the other 20th century heroes of, of kind of nonviolent movements. We need more of that. And, and it's good to see it coming from Extinction Rebellion. And it's good to see well, it coming that, from all said, over. Well, that said, and I totally agree with you. Um, but just to bring this back to where we started, Bill, you, you say in your book that we need, obviously, the advance of technology. We need civil disobedience. But I would argue at this point that we also need uh, for for us to make very, very intentional 
uh, efforts at closing the inequality gap. Because I think if we don't do that, uh, and, and, and let's say, you know, the inequality gap has been in part, in fact, maybe in a large part caused by the inequalities of the Industrial Revolution. And if we cannot use the next global economy to close that gap, then the political and the social friction that comes from that actually acts as a very, very powerful handbrake to the technological advance that is taking care of emission reductions. So I see it sort of as a three-part hat here where maybe before we could move with technology and civil disobedience, but now we need those two and we need to address what we what we term just transition because otherwise we're just not going to get the policies in place in the time that we need. So I'm actually seeing that piece as being the piece that could potentially provide the scale and pace that we need to answer uh, and to address climate change in a timely fashion. I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's that's why it's so important and helpful that we have things like the Green New Deal now to look at or the LEAP Manifesto. I, and I also think that some of the challenge to that inequality is going to come precisely as we build out the things we have to build out simply to deal with the climate crisis. One of the things that's important about the sun and the wind is that nobody owns them. Uh, so much of the inequality and power imbalance in this world stems from the fact that there's a small number of people who own the patches of land under which coal and gas and oil are located, and those people have acquired enormous power. Look at the Koch brothers who have dominated American politics, basically purchased a political party. It's not because they have some powerful idea about things. It's because they're the biggest oil and gas barons in North America. And, and hence, they have enormous political power. They'll still be rich people in a world that runs on sun and wind, but there won't be Koch brothers. And of course, that's why the fossil fuel industry hates sun and wind so much. You know, If you're Exxon and you've made your fortune by making people write you a check every month for, for another tank of oil, the fact that the sun comes up for free every day is the stupidest business model anyone ever came up with. <laughs> or the smartest. <laughs> for the rest of us, the smartest. And that's one of the things that's going to make it possible to get where we need to go. So, Bill, I mean, I think, you know, today is, is such an exciting day with the kids on the street again. And um, thank, thank you so much for talking to us. This, this transition now from, from school striking to general striking really has the potential to take us through a phase transition to more impact. And, and no one has done more to bring that about and bring so much else about. I mean, I remember in the days when Christiana and I were at the United Nations, your hands and 350's hands were on so much of what we were able to achieve by your organizing your engagement Indeed. so thank you for that and well, thank you for talking to us thank today. you all and it's it really is this the, the kids have shown the way but now it's time for elders to behave the way that we need elders to behave in this world yeah with and, responsibility and, uh, for a change it'll be <laughs> exciting to see it happen indeed Bill we look forward to seeing you on the streets uh, today certainly but most definitely September 20th God bless both of you take care See you, Bill. See ya. Thanks. So I think on this incredibly important day, uh, Bill's message is hugely powerful. 
The two technologies that he identifies, nonviolent resistance and the solar panel, are really the embodiment of outrage and optimism. And we need to utilize both in this endeavor. And on a day where there are over a million young people on the streets around the world, and Christiana and I have just come back from the London school strike in Parliament Square, which was remarkable, both in terms of the scale and the spirit and the general sense of optimism and participation. On a day like this, you have to ask what it's going to take. And the collective moment in September can be, will be, a pivotal part of that. At the same time, the lesson from Australia is that we need to provide pathways for people into a new world in which human thriving is entirely possible. This is an essential part of what is now in front of us. Unless we're able to provide that pathway for transition, democratic systems will not allow a change of this magnitude. This transition only happens if enough of us give our consent to it. And optimism for a decent future with jobs and clean air is a much better selling point for that. So thank you for listening to this episode of Outrage and Optimism. We've been live for a month now and are so grateful to all of you for listening, for the comments and shares. The podcast is easy to share, so send a link to friends and family you think might like it and get the conversation going in your community. A lot of you are also writing in with questions and suggestions, and we really like those. You can reach us anytime at podcast at globaloptimism.com. So it just remains for me to say that Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism. The co-hosts are Christiana Figueres, Paul Dickinson, and me, Tom Rivet-Karnak. I'd like to thank everyone who made this happen. Pete Clutton-Brock, Clay Carnill, Chloe Revel, Natasha Rivet-Karnak, Alexandra Vargas-Morera, Sarah Thomas, Marina Mancilla, Callum Grieve, and Zoe Cholakantich. I'd also like to thank Michael Northrup from Rockefeller Brothers Fund and Nigel Topping from We Mean Business. You can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and please do subscribe and leave us a rating. Next week, we have a great one. Ben Rhodes, former Deputy National Security Advisor to President Obama will be here. Apart from having held one of the most influential positions in the Obama White House for eight years, Ben is also an author and his book, The World As It Is, is fantastic. He's also a co-host of Pod Save the World. So don't miss that one. We'll see you next week. <laughs>